So if you're new with us here today, we have been working our way through a book of the Bible. It's actually a letter in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul to churches in the region of Ephesus, which was an ancient city um, on the uh, western coast of what is modern-day Turkey. And the first week, we, we looked at verses 1 and 2. This was the great introduction. We said that when you get a letter, often you're a present, you want to throw the letter away on top and just get to the present, to the good stuff inside. But you pull it out, you read the letter. That's verse 1 and 2. Who is this from? Who is this to? What is the message? And then we said last week that, that verse 3, all the way to verse 14 of Ephesians 1, is one long sentence in the original language, uh, a, a very long sentence. And we said that it's actually the, the second longest sentence in the New Testament, second only to Colossians. And we talked last time about the, the beautiful structure of this long sentence from verse 3 to verse 14. We said how it begins with this awareness of the blessing of the Lord, that we should praise God because we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that we may lack material blessing in this life, but according to the scripture, if we are in Christ, we lack no spiritual blessing. And then as the sentence goes on, Paul roots these spiritual blessings that we have in the Trinity, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we said that in verse four to six, we saw that we have every spiritual blessing because the Father chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And then in verse 7 to 12, we have every spiritual blessing because the Son redeemed us. And then finally, verse 13 and 14, we have every spiritual blessing because the Spirit sealed us. Again, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, rooting, grounding the spiritual blessings of the Christian life. And we also said that each of these three sections, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, end with the praise and the glory of God, to the praise of his glory, verse 6, verse 12, verse 14. Beautiful symmetry, beautiful structure. So last week we looked at verse 4 to 6, that, that the Father has chosen us, the, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination. And so today we're going to be focusing on verse 7 to verse 12, the work of the Son, God the Son in redemption, that he redeemed us. So similar to last week, I'm going to read our text today. Um, the, the, the verses that we're going to be looking at are in your bulletin, your order of worship. Uh, if you have your Bible, though, I'm going to be reading verse 3 to verse 14. So I'm reading the entire sentence in the original language uh, because it, it helps us understand that this is supposed to be taken as one concept. This is, this is one idea brought together by the Apostle Paul. So again, this is Ephesians 1. I'll begin reading in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Father, I pray today that this sermon could be to the praise of your glory, that uh, the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Now, coming to Ephesians 1, to this long sentence, it almost reminds me of getting dropped into the climax of a movie, that, that a good movie will build up over time until finally the, the climax comes and you're, you're amazed how all the pieces come together. But sometimes if you were to drop somebody into the climax of a movie, you would have a hard time really understanding the emotional impact of it because you didn't build up to it. And I think that that can happen to us with Ephesians 1, where, where Paul, he gives the introduction, and then he climbs to 10,000 feet of this spiritual exaltation of the beauty and the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I think for, for us, whether you grew up in the church or not, there are a lot of words in this that we are familiar with. For instance, in the, in the verses that we're looking at today, uh, verse 7 to verse 12, you see the word redemption, blood, forgiveness, grace, Christ. Um, these are the, the great Sunday school words, the words that we hear all the time. And it's easier for our mind to shut down and to not think about what these things mean where it just sounds like Christian cliches that don't touch to the human heart. And that's why today we're going to, to camp out on this idea of redemption. We're going to look at redemption under three headings. So the, the first heading is that we have redemption. So, so look in your Bible with me at verse 7. He says, in him... If you look before, that's the beloved in Christ. We have redemption. Now, redemption 
in the, the biblical sense is this release from captivity. A ransom is paid to set someone free. Or if you think of the, the biblical concept of redemption, you could turn all the way to the Old Testament and think of the, the ultimate Old Testament picture of redemption, where Israel was, was languishing in slavery in Egypt. They were under Pharaoh. They were under the, the whip of the taskmaster in Egypt. And eventually, after hundreds of years of suffering this oppression of slavery, they cried out to the Lord saying, Lord, deliver us. And the Lord raised up Moses to deliver his people through great signs and wonders, carrying them from Egypt all the way through the desert to the promised land. That is the, the biblical picture of redemption. But then when you carry that into the New Testament, we see that, that it's, it's not just a, a physical redemption from slavery or from outward oppression. And there are some even today that, that want to say that the idea of redemption is primarily about external redemption from poverty or from oppression of some sort. You, you could think of theologies like liberation theology or uh, the social gospel or the prosperity gospel. Some of you may be familiar with those terms, but all of them make Christianity primarily about my external circumstances changing. And don't get me wrong, the gospel has social implications, that it does impact our outward life, that the gospel can overthrow outward oppression in the world. But what we see in scripture is that when it comes to redemption, that yes, in the, in the Old Testament, we have this external redemption from slavery in Egypt. But what is the ultimate problem of the human condition? Are we enslaved? Are we in bondage? And that's the picture that you see in your Bible in, ver in chapter 2, verse 1. <coughs> Pardon me. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That what Paul is saying there is that, that our ultimate bondage, the ultimate slavery of humanity, uh, is not external, but, but it, it's spiritual that we're enslaved to patterns of sin in our life, that we are enslaved to selfishness, we're enslaved to rebellion, and that there's the, the spiritual dimension of that following the course of this, air, this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, that, that the ultimate pharaoh of our world is Satan, called here the prince of the power of the air that we need redemption. We need a redemption that touches to the very heart of, of all of the problems of humanity. And so look back at chapter 1, verse 7. He says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And so you say, what is this redemption? 
Well, it's more than forgiveness, and we'll, we'll get to that eventually. It's not merely individual forgiveness of sins. But when Paul is defining redemption for us here, he says, we have redemption. And then what is that redemption? It is forgiveness of our trespasses. It's, it's about Jesus coming in the fullness of time to lay down his life for us to, to be saved. But you'll notice something incredible about verse 7. It says that in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses. He doesn't say we will have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses, or we might have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses, or if we try hard enough, we'll have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses. But speaking to believers here, the saints who are in Ephesus from verse 1, he's saying we have redemption. And this is incredible. This is part of what makes Christianity unique compared to every other religion. That every other religious system on some level is saying, here are the rules, here are the ceremonies that you have to follow. Follow these, and eventually, in the end, you'll be redeemed. On the final day, you'll die, and maybe you'll have redemption. You'll have forgiveness of sins on the day of judgment if you've done the right thing. And so forgiveness is the end. Obedience is the means to that end. But you couldn't say, I have forgiveness. It's something you're working toward. It's, it's the, the car that you're saving up for. It's not something that you actually have in your name today. But no, he says that we have redemption. And that's because in, in the biblical gospel, the, the biblical un understanding of salvation, the moment we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, the Bible says that our sin is counted to Christ on the cross. His perfect righteousness is counted to us. We're, we're clothed in the identity of Christ. And then without exaggeration, we can say, I have redemption. I have the forgiveness of sins. And perhaps that's something new for, for you, that maybe you came in today or you're watching online and, and you grew up in a place where all you heard was become good enough and God will redeem you and will forgive you. Whether that was in a, a context claiming to be Christian or maybe even a different religion completely. And maybe you realize that that didn't work, that you felt the, the, the weight of the slavery to sin that you couldn't be good enough, and, and you felt the, the shame, you felt the, the guilt. Maybe you, you even today feel that sense of shame and that sense of, of guilt weighed down. God can never forgive me. God can never redeem me. If he knew the things that I've done or the things that I've said or the people that I've hurt, he could never forgive me. But the, the amazing promise of the scripture is that you could come into church today without redemption, without forgiveness of sins, and then leave church today with redemption, with forgiveness of sin. And you say, well, what, what changed? And, and that's because according to the Bible, all 
that it takes is letting go of ourselves, our trust in our own righteousness, our own goodness, taking hold of Christ by faith. And then we can say, I have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is the promise. But probably the, for the most, the majority of you, you're in the place where you, you have repented and trusted in Christ. You consider yourself a believer. And maybe intellectually on some level, you know, with Paul, I have redemption, the forgiveness of my trespasses. But as believers, we often live as if that is not true. We live as if we are still litigating our sin. That, that we think of sin that we committed, things that we've done in our past, maybe even before you were a Christian, maybe you after you were a Christian and you can't get it out of your mind, you still feel the guilt, you still feel the shame, that you, you stay awake at night in bed when you can't sleep and all of the, the, the words, all of the images flood into your mind and you relive them again, you relitigate them again in your heart, in your mind, as if you do not have redemption, the forgiveness of your trespasses, as if the promises of God are not true. And that's the great offer here to believers, that, that we can take hold of the promises of God, to know that, that we have these things have been dealt with, that we've brought them to Christ, they are nailed to the cross, they are buried in the tomb, we, we have no reason to bear them anymore, they have been dealt with, we know we have Redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So that's the, the first heading today, that, that we have redemption, this present reality. But now we'll move to the, the second heading. You say, how do we get this redemption? Look at verse 7 again. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood. And that is the, the second heading, that we have redemption through his blood, through the blood of Christ. And just as the imagery of redemption goes all the way back to the Old Testament, so the imagery of blood goes all the way back to the Old Testament. All the way from Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve became aware of their sin, they knew that they were naked, they were ashamed, God confronted them. And then brought grace that, that, there, that he was going to lay out a plan of salvation through the offspring of the woman who had crushed the head of the serpent, Satan. And you remember how God takes an animal, he, he kills the animal, he takes the skin of the animal, clothes their nakedness and their shame. That their, their nakedness is clothed through the shedding of blood. That something has to die for them to be covered. Or you can think of the Passover celebration, still celebrated by, by Jews today, but going back to the Exodus where the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. And you remember that the final of the 10 plagues was uh, the angel of death coming over to strike down the firstborn of every household. And what was it that Israel had to do? Because presumably the angel of death would have affected the Israelite houses, that they were sinners, they had fallen short of the glory of God. But he says, take a lamb, kill the lamb, spread the blood on the door post of the home, and then when the angel of death passes through the land, he will pass over those houses because of the blood, that they would have redemption 
through blood of the lamb. And then that carries into the, the worship of Israel, first in the tabernacle, then in the temple, where they would bring animals to the priests. The priest would kill the animal, would take the blood, would carry it into the holy place, and then on the Day of Atonement into the most holy place, would sprinkle the, the blood onto the mercy seat in the presence of the Lord in the most holy place. And the point of that imagery was to say that the wages of sin is death, that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that God's judgment against sin is death, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Something has to die for redemption to be possible. But what it's saying is that there, there's hope of redemption because something will die in your place, shed its blood so that you can be forgiven. And that's what Jesus does, that, that we have redemption through his blood because Jesus comes as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. That he comes to, to pour out his blood, to pour out his, his life, that the life, it says in the Old Testament, is in the blood. Jesus pours out his life, his blood, so that we can have redemption, so that we can have forgiveness of sins. You can think of the, the hymn, what can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me pure within? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. That it, it's, it's not my righteousness, it is his blood. Or you can think of the other hymn that we sing at Hope sometimes, there is a fountain filled with blood, drunk from Emmanuel's veins. Uh, and, you, and you think about it, that is shocking language. And that, that's part of the way that I said we are desensitized to the language of the Bible. That we are so used to this imagery of the blood of Christ that we don't think about it. But imagine if you were reading this for the first time, if you were completely unfamiliar with Christianity. It's talking about this man, with their point, had lived not more than 30 years before, and you're saying we have redemption through his blood. And that's why the Romans were convinced that Christians were cannibals, because we're constantly talking about blood. What we see here, this imagery, this is my blood, this is my body. And they said, what in the world are these crazy Christians talking about? But what we try to do, I think, in our society, in modern America, even in the modern American church, is we want to, to drain all the blood out of Christianity. That we want a Christianity that is acceptable to scientific, modern, suburban people. That we want a, a nice clean, welcoming, acceptable Christianity. We, we want a, a Christianity that looks good in children's Bibles or uh, it, that feels appropriate for, for Sunday school. But that's not the, the Christianity of the Bible, that, that the Christianity of the Bible is a Christianity that is drenched with the blood of Christ to take away the sins of his people. That is the religion of the Bible. But you can think of the ways that we may unknowingly try to, to drain the blood out of Christianity. Uh, one is to think that redemption comes through our own goodness. Jonathan, um, 
the assistant here and I uh, go out weekly. We try to get out weekly to do street evangelism. And it's interesting when we're, when we're having conversations with people about the gospel, we hear over and over again from just ordinary people on the street, God will accept me because I'm a good person. I've tried my best. I've tried to do the right thing. And it's amazing how often people will say, that is why God's going to accept me. He's going to accept me because I'm a good person. I've tried hard. I've, I've done my best. And I'm a Christian and I go to church every Sunday. And, and part of that conversation is, is, is where we'll gently challenge that assumption. So you believe that Jesus lived? Yes. You believe that Jesus died on the cross? Yes. Why is it that Jesus shed his blood? Why is it that Jesus poured out his blood? If you can get to heaven by being a good person, then it seems like all of the blood of Christ is wasted on the ground. But the point of the Bible is that, no, we couldn't bear the, the wrath of God against sin. We can't bear the infinite weight of that wrath in and of ourselves. And so we need a Messiah who comes is not just an animal, but as the God-man who, because he's infinite God, he can bear the infinite wrath of God against our sin. Because he is man, he can stand in our place and represent us before God. That is only then the blood of the lamb that we can be accepted. But I think that we also drain the blood out of Christianity when we try to, to think that it's one religion among many religions, where we say, my religion is Christianity, and it's fine. All the religions are equal. They're, they're equal paths to God. So I'll have Jesus as my religious leader. You can have Muhammad or Krishna or whatever religious leader you want to have at the center. And we'll just agree to disagree, and we'll all end up with God in the end. And I think that that understanding would make sense if redemption was on the basis of works, that if it's on the basis of being good, why couldn't somebody become good from any religion? That's very logical. But the point in the Bible is that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None is righteous, no, not one. There's no one who is good when it comes to God's standard. And for Christians, we recognize that that, that is what makes Jesus so central that's why Jesus says that, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That, that that entrance into the holy place, into the presence of God, that the imagery that was in the Old Testament temple is, is through the blood of Christ, that we come to have redemption through his blood. And, and so we can, we can rejoice in that. We can marvel in that. We can give thanks for the blood of Christ poured out in love, for people like you and me who couldn't have done it on our own. So that's the, the second heading today, that, that we have redemption through his blood. But now let's look at the, the third heading, that we have redemption according to the riches of his grace. Look again at verse 7 in your Bible. It says, in him we have redemption... Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. That redemption is according to the riches 
of the grace of God for us. Now, grace in the Bible is unmerited favor. It's getting a gift that you don't deserve. They always say that mercy is when you don't get a punishment that you deserve. Mercy is when you get a gift that you don't deserve. Uh, that from, from the Lord we receive mercy. We, we don't receive the punishment that we rightly deserve for our sin through the blood of Christ. But then we also are given this amazing gift of, of grace that we don't deserve. And that's why he, he calls it this, the riches of his grace. It's all because of this rich grace. And then he says that it's, it's more than just a rich grace, that it is a, this lavish grace. It says it's a grace which he lavished upon us. But it's not a, a foolish grace or an unwise grace. He says that he lavished it upon us in all wisdom and insight. And then what did the grace do for us? That it's a grace making known to us the mystery of his will. What was formerly kept secret has been known by grace. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. And so you see that, yes, redemption is, is individual forgiveness of sins. But remember, I said that it's actually much more than that. That in the Bible, redemption has this, this cosmic dimension. That you could think of the, the blood of Christ falling onto the ground. That, that, that first, we receive forgiveness of sins, this inner spiritual change in the believer. But eventually, the, the efficacy of that will, will spread through the whole world to bring newness to all things. When Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, when he establishes the new heavens and the earth, this glorious kingdom, no tears, no suffering, no pain, that, that this is all in grace, this to unite all things in him, to unite Jew and Gentile, to unite, unite people of different races, different cultures, different languages, brought together before the Lamb to worship uh, all things in heaven, and are on earth. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. We have the inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first in hope, to first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. That this change within the individual, this cosmic change that Christ will bring, is all by grace, in grace, through grace. And so the last thing that I, I want to leave you with is just two questions about, about grace. We said that we have redemption according to the riches of his grace. But the, the first question is, has, have you experienced the grace of God? Do you know the, the riches of his grace experientially? And it's the same thing that we were saying about redemption, that, that you could come into church without an experience of the grace of God and salvation and leave with that experience. And that if you turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to see my sin. Let me see my sin. Let me take hold of Christ in faith. Give me that strength that the Bible says that even that desire to ask for that is a gift of grace in your life. That You wouldn't ask that. You wouldn't want that if it wasn't for the grace of God. 
But then you pray for more grace to, to cry out to Christ, more grace to, to ask him to be the Lord of your life, that we can know and experience this grace. So that's the, the first question. Have you experienced this grace? But then the second question is, if you have experienced this lavish grace, how should it affect your life? That we have redemption according to the riches of his grace. And if that's true, what difference should that make? And this is something that we'll have to talk about every week in Ephesians, because part of the outline of Ephesians is what what theologians call indicative imperative. Chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians are all about what God has done for us in Christ. Verses 4 to, or sorry, chapters 4 to 6 are all about how we, we are to live and walk in light of that grace of God. He, he even says in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of his calling. Or, or chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And there he says that God has loved you, therefore walk in his love, extend that love to others. And I think the same logic applies here for us in chapter 1, verse 7, that if we really have redemption according to the riches of his grace, we should be the type of people who want to tell others about that grace. Look at the grace of God to help others understand that, no, Christianity is not based on me being a better person than you. It's based on me being, if anything, a worse person and redeemed by grace in the blood of Christ, that we tell others about the grace of God. But then it's not just that we tell others about it, but we actually, Lord willing, show the grace of God to others where we seek to be gracious to our spouses when they're hard to love or to our children when we're tempted to be frustrated or to our friends or our families or our coworkers or our boss or our employee, that this grace, this, this favor, this unmerited favor, this lavish favor that God pours out on us, what does it look like then for us to extend that grace to others as a response to the grace that he has given us? To recognize that first we have redemption, it's a present reality. To recognize second, that it is through the blood of Christ that Jesus is at the center And then third, to recognize that all of it is according to the riches of his grace. Let's pray. Father, we long for the riches of your grace. Uh, Forgive us for living in spiritual poverty when we have spiritual riches, that you have given us so much in Christ, but yet we are so prone to think that that we can do it on our own or to try to prop up our own righteousness and our own goodness. Father, bring us to Christ today. We, we pray that we can see that all of our salvation is by grace alone, that it is by Christ alone, but it's by faith alone. It's as we know from scripture alone, for God's glory alone, uh, that your glory would be at the center. And Lord, we, we pray for us here at Hope Church, that we would be a church that is characterized by grace, that 
I ask that when, when people come into this church that they would see the grace of God reflected off of us, your grace reflected from us to them. Uh, Lord, we know we will not do that perfectly in this life, uh, but I pray that you would give us grace to be gracious, uh, and especially in, in difficult relationships, difficult struggles, um, and to have that freedom that we know is ours in Christ, that we have redemption. And so we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.